Hello, hello, I'm Nurse Mo, and welcome or welcome back to the Straighty Nursing Podcast. This is where I teach nursing concepts and share tips on how to thrive in school and at the bedside. In this week's episode, we're talking about Huntington's disease. But of course, before we dive into that, I want to take a quick minute for a listener shout out. And this one goes out to Kaylee. So Kaylee says, I am super thankful for your podcast. I wish before my first clinical day, I would have known you existed. At midterm, I was failing with a 72%. And within two weeks of listening to your podcast and using study sesh, I aced my next two exams with an 88 and a 98% and can officially say I passed my first HESI exam with a 919 score. I'm officially moving on to my second semester of nursing school and I will continue to use your podcast and recommend it to other students. They definitely have saved me the last few weeks. Thank you. Kaylee, I want to say thank you right back at you and way to go turning your grades around. You went from failing to absolutely crushing it. And I could not be more proud of you or more happy for you. And I'm just humbled and so, so thrilled that this podcast and Study Sesh, my other podcast, have helped you do that. So thank you again. And I wish you all the very best as you continue on your journey to become a nurse. So if you're curious what Study Sesh is, I will put a link to it in the episode notes. It's my private podcast that gives you a fantastic way to study and review without sitting at your desk and staring at a screen. Okay, let's talk about Huntington's disease. So Huntington's disease is a progressive neurodegenerative disorder that is caused by these extra repeats of an amino acid group, the cytosine, adenine, guanine amino acid group in this specific gene called the Huntington gene. So the gene is Huntington with the T-I-N on the end of it, and the disease is Huntington's. Okay, so that's not confusing at all, right? But anyway, it's the extra repeats of that amino acid group that causes the patient to have the symptoms. And this leads to dysfunction of neurons and neuron death. Mainly, this is going to occur in the basal ganglia and the cerebral cortex. Now, while Huntington's typically becomes apparent in adulthood, it is possible for the individual to have juvenile onset Huntington's disease. It affects 4-ish to 8.4 individuals per 100,000 in the United States. Worldwide, that number is closer to 2.7 per 100,000. So, Definitely not a rare disorder. I've probably seen it a few times in clinical, definitely saw it on my exams. So who is most at risk for Huntington's disease? And that's going to be the individual who has inherited Huntington's disease, that gene to have those repeats of that amino acid group on that Huntington gene. If they inherit that trait from one or both parents, they're at risk for Huntington's disease. It's basically a genetic condition. If one parent has Huntington's, there's a 50% chance of the child having the disease. And the more repeats of that amino acid group that exist, the higher the risk of passing the disease on to a child. 
Further, the number of repeats may increase with each generation as it's passed down, and this is a phenomenon called anticipation. With a higher number of repeats, onset is earlier and disease severity is greater. And then some other risks for that earlier onset include the use of alcohol, tobacco, and drugs. So before we dive into the latte method and go through it that way, let's first talk about some of the complications of Huntington's disease. So as a progressive neurodegenerative disorder, individuals who have that later stage Huntington's disease usually are going to be bed-bound, nonverbal, and require total care. So complications with a patient like that include things like pneumonia as a result of immobility and aspiration. A lot of times, actually many, many times, patients with Huntington's disease have dysphagia, which is that difficulty swallowing. And when you have aspiration, you get aspiration pneumonia. And in fact, pneumonia is a common cause of death in patients with Huntington's disease. These individuals are also at high risk for malnutrition, for falls as the disease progresses. It's definitely going to affect their movement and their gait. They're at high risk for infection and suicide and suicidal ideation. One study that I reviewed in preparing this episode showed that about 25% of patients with Huntington's disease attempt suicide. So now let's dive into all the things that you need to know about Huntington's disease using the straight A nursing latte method. So the first letter is L. How does the patient with Huntington's disease look? Essentially, what are their signs and symptoms? So the signs and symptoms of Huntington's can vary from person to person, and they're going to change throughout the stages of the disease. The general categories are cognitive impairment, psychiatric disorders, and progressive motor dysfunction. So looking at cognitive impairment, deficits in this area include things like forgetfulness, inattention, slow psychomotor response, altered perceptions of time, executive dysfunction, impaired emotion recognition, trouble with multitasking, and ultimately dementia. Cognitive symptoms typically start first and are some of the earliest signs of Huntington's disease. And since mild cognitive impairment is often pretty easy to explain away, early diagnosis can be missed and is more likely if the individual is unaware of their HD risk. So maybe the individual was adopted and didn't know they had a parent who had Huntington's disease, or maybe they had a parent with Huntington's disease who died before their symptoms onset. So they may not have any idea that they're at risk for the disease. The other category I mentioned is psychiatric disorders. Depression is common in patients with Huntington's disease. I mentioned earlier that 25% have tried to commit suicide. So depression is definitely a huge part of your care for these patients and when you're assessing these patients. So initially, patients often present with more subtle symptoms such as difficulty with impulse control and irritability. Maybe they have anger outbursts. And over time, the patient can progress to exhibiting OCD-type behavior, apathy, anxiety, aggression, and even 
psychosis. As with that cognitive dysfunction, the psychiatric signs and symptoms typically are evident years before those motor symptoms set in. So let's talk about the progressive motor dysfunction. So motor dysfunction plays a key role in placing that patient at risk for falls and progressive disability. It is often initially seen in the extremities with something called chorea, which is dance-like involuntary movements. And a very specific one seen in Huntington's disease is this finger and wrist movement that you might hear called piano fingers or piano playing. The patient may also have a jerky gait. They could have tics, ataxia, and that poor coordination. You're also likely to see pyramidal symptoms, and the patient will have a positive Babinski sign. Now, motor dysfunction also affects the muscles of speech and the muscles of swallowing. So this leads to dysarthria, which is that slurred speech, and dysphagia, which is difficulty swallowing. Over time, the individual's motor dysfunction progresses to hypokinesia, rigidity, and contractures. So let's talk very briefly about the clinical course of Huntington's disease, which can be divided into three segments, presymptomatic, prodromal, and manifest. So presymptomatic, at this stage, at that presymptomatic stage, the patient has no symptoms. And imaging, if it were done, may show some changes due to Huntington's disease, but treatment is not necessarily indicated at this time. They don't have any symptoms. Then that prodromal stage is when the patient may have some small motor and cognitive symptoms, as well as psychiatric symptoms such as depression. Imaging will show evidence of Huntington's disease, and treatment is possibly indicated at this time. And then there's the manifest stage. At this stage, the patient is exhibiting significant motor, cognitive, and psychiatric symptoms. Treatment is definitely indicated in this stage. So then we also have the stages of Huntington's disease, not necessarily the clinical course, but the stages of Huntington's disease as we look at it from an early, middle, and late kind of categorization. So in early Huntington's disease, patients are able to function independently, but they may have some minor involuntary or uncoordinated movements. They may have difficulty concentrating. They may be irritable and suffer from depression. And then in middle stage Huntington's disease, they're starting to lose their independence and show more obvious chorea, those dance-like involuntary movements, and have issues with balance and issues with swallowing. They will also have trouble organizing and prioritizing information. In that middle stage, the patient will definitely need assistance with some or many ADLs. And then in that later stage, Huntington's disease, the individual definitely requires assistance with all ADLs and is bedridden as well as nonverbal. The patient may exhibit significant chorea at this time, but is more likely to experience rigidity, dystonia, and bradykinesia. The psychiatric manifestations are present, but are often masked by the inability to communicate. One thing I will mention is that in juvenile onset Huntington's disease, the symptoms are similar to that of adults, 
but seizures can occur as well. Okay, now let's go on to the next letter in the latte method, which is an A for assessment. How do we assess this patient? So assessment of the patient with Huntington's is going to vary based on the individual's unique clinical course and their progression of the disease. In general, assessments for a patient with Huntington's will often be closely correlated with patient safety, just kind of under that umbrella of patient safety, as these patients are at very high risk for falls, for aspiration, for infection, and death by suicide. So we'll assess motor symptoms with our patient, looking at range of motion, looking at muscle strength, looking at their gait and evidence of contractures. All of these things are going to tie into patient safety. If they don't have good range of motion, if they don't have an even steady gait, they're at risk for falls. If they've got contractures, they're at risk for immobility and having skin breakdown and all the other consequences of immobility. You want to make note of changes in the patient's mood, such as anxiety, anger, and definitely depression. As you interact with the patient, assess for cognitive dysfunction, such as memory loss, inattention, and executive dysfunction. You definitely want to ask the patient if they are thinking of harming themselves. Remember, high, high risk for suicidal ideation and even attempts. Assess the patient's ability to swallow and consult a speech-language pathologist as needed. A patient who has dysphagia, which is that difficulty swallowing, may also have dysarthria or slurred speech. So if I've got a patient with slurred speech, I'm going to be suspicious that their swallowing may be affected as well. So I would want a speech-language pathologist to come and check out the patient. If you give your patient a sip of water and they start coughing, and they do that every time they get a sip of water, They're having trouble swallowing. They need further evaluation. You'll definitely examine their skin very carefully because they're likely to have decreased mobility and be at very high risk for skin breakdown. Weigh the patient, monitor for weight loss and decreased oral intake. Along with that, assess for signs of dehydration due to decreased oral intake. And assess for pain. This is something that often gets overlooked with patients who are nonverbal and not moving around. Assess for pain. There is pain with Huntington's disease. You want to make sure, of course, that you are using the correct pain scoring tool. A really good one is the ANPS, the Adult Nonverbal Pain Scale. We use this with our nonverbal adults. And this specific pain scale looks at five different elements, and it will assign each a number based on the severity of observable symptoms. And these five different elements are face, activity, guarding, physiology, and respiratory. So looking at the patient's face, if they have no particular expression or they're sitting there smiling at you, that would be a zero score. They're not showing signs of pain based on what their face looks like. A score of two, which would be the highest score, would be they're grimacing frequently. They're tearing up. They're frowning. Their forehead's all wrinkled. They look like they're in pain. For the activity, a score of zero, meaning no observable signs of pain, would be they're lying quietly in a normal position. To score 
two points here, and there's also a one point in the middle, but we're just doing the extremes, the patient would be restless or have excessive activity. Of course, your patient with Huntington's disease, again, may have those involuntary movements. So it's important to notice and understand what those look like versus a pain response. For guarding, if the patient's lying quietly, they're not positioning hands over areas of their body or guarding them, then that's a score of zero. They may not have any pain. But if they are rigid and stiff, that would score them for pain. And yes, patients with Huntington's are often rigid from that muscular, you know, the motor dysfunction that they have. Assume that that is painful. Assume that contractures are painful. They may have changes to physiology, which is the next element. Stable vital signs is a zero. A significant change in vital signs would be a score of two. So a blood pressure that's gone up by like 30 millimeters of mercury, a heart rate that's gone up by 25 beats per minute. That's a significant change. And then respiratory, if they've got a baseline respiratory rate, baseline oxygen saturation level, if they're on a ventilator, they're compliant with the ventilator, that's a score of zero. But if they have a respiratory rate that's 20 above baseline, so really tachypnic, that's significant, right? That's a sign of pain. Also could be a sign of a lot of other things, but when we're looking at it from a pain standpoint, It could be because of that. Or they may have a 10% decrease in their SpO2. Or if they're on a ventilator, they're really asynchronous with the ventilator. They're fighting the ventilator. So that's kind of how that ANPS, adult nonverbal pain scale, works. There are other ones. There's pain aid. There's the CPOT. Not going to go through all of those. But if you're interested in learning more about those, I'll put links in the episode notes. You also want to make sure that you are including family, friends, and caregivers into your overall assessment of the patient because these individuals can provide similarly important information on the patient's condition and how it has declined. So the next letter in the latte method is T, and that is for tests, what tests are likely to be ordered for someone with Huntington's or suspicious of Huntington's. So if the patient has a family history and they're showing symptoms of Huntington's disease, they may not do testing. It may not be necessary in order for the MD to arrive at a diagnosis of Huntington's disease. When tests are ordered, they can include genetic testing to look at those amino acid group repeats. And this is considered the gold standard for a definitive, definitive diagnosis. If there are no CAG repeats, that amino acid group, this could possibly mean there is another gene responsible for the patient's signs and symptoms. Note that genetic testing can be done as early as prenatally if one or both of the parents know that they have Huntington's disease. And then we have imaging studies like CT and MRI. These may be utilized to evaluate the extent of cerebral atrophy. A typical patient with Huntington's disease will have convex-shaped ventricles in the brain. And then other labs may be used to rule out the other possible causes for the patient's symptoms. For example, liver disease can cause ataxia and confusion. So the patient could have their liver function test, their liver enzymes evaluated. 
And then the next letter is another T for treatments. So what treatments do we utilize in the care of our patient? So it's really important to understand that since Huntington's is not curable, there is no cure for this condition. Care is focused on palliation, which is comfort, on reducing symptoms, and preventing complications. So looking at it from a pharmacologic standpoint, antidepressants and antipsychotics may be used to lessen the burden of psychiatric symptoms. Antipsychotics and antidiskinetics are used to manage the motor symptoms of Huntington's. And then there's two medications specifically utilized for chorea, and these are tetrabenazine and dutetrabenazine. And of course, we're also going to be addressing the patient's pain. They may need pain medication, which can include NSAIDs, Tylenol, and possibly opioids in severe cases. And then there's diet. Diet could actually be a treatment. Research shows that a Mediterranean-style diet may delay onset of the disease or reduce symptom burden. So the Mediterranean diet consists of lots of fish, lots of plant-based foods, olive oil, and having low consumption of things like red meat, dairy, and poultry. Another component of treatment is physical therapy and occupational therapy. Both modalities can be utilized to improve physical functional capacity and promote independence with the individual's ADLs for as long as possible. PT and OT are also used to aid caregivers in learning how to provide safe and effective care at home. Earlier, I mentioned getting a speech-language pathologist to consult for your patient if they're showing signs of swallowing difficulty, so they may get speech-language therapy. A licensed speech-language pathologist may be consulted to assess the patient for dysphagia, like I mentioned, and to help the patient with both their dysphagia and their dysarthria if they also have that slurred speech. If the patient has dysphagia, the speech therapist or speech-language pathologist will prescribe a specific texture of diet, such as a chopped diet or a pureed diet as needed. And then there are potential future treatments for Huntington's disease, which involve target therapy to inhibit expression of that Huntington protein. So it's really exciting, and there's research ongoing in this area. And then the final letter in the LATTE method is E for educate. How are we going to educate our patient, educate our family and caregivers? So Genetic counseling is a huge component of this, and the nurse isn't necessarily doing this, but the genetic counselor would be. And this plays a really key role in patient and family education and goes far beyond just doing that blood test for the genetic testing. Prior to undergoing genetic testing for Huntington's disease, the individual may get a lot of counseling to examine how a positive result could impact them and their family emotionally functionally, and financially. I read that less than 20% of individuals who have that 50% risk of Huntington's even seek genetic counseling, which is unfortunate considering the long-term implications of the disease and the risk for passing it on to children. 
Another component of education is providing supportive care to the patient and to the family. You want to ensure the patient and the family understand that increased suicide risk and the burdens that the disease places on caregivers. Teach them about caregiver fatigue. Teach them to seek respite care whenever possible and help them understand that resources are available to assist with finances and care. And hopefully your patient has a social worker or a case manager or both who can help coordinate them getting the resources that they need. You want to teach caregivers all aspects of home care as they will be assisting with ADLs. The physical therapist can also get involved and teach caregivers how to do things safely so that they don't get hurt and the patient doesn't get hurt, like getting them from bed to the commode, etc. A key thing for safety is to teach patients, teach caregivers the importance of eating in an upright position to help prevent aspiration and that the diet texture may be adjusted over time as the disease progresses. In later stages of the disease, the patient may not even be able to swallow at all and may require a feeding tube. So caregivers need to be taught how to administer enteral feedings and care for the feeding tube itself. Teach caregivers to monitor for signs of skin breakdown and the importance of keeping that skin clean and dry. And teach caregivers and the patient fall prevention strategies such as changing position slowly, removing rugs from the floor, keeping pathways from the bedroom to the bathroom well lit at night and free of clutter, and installing grab bars in the bathroom, etc. Encourage physical activity and adherence to physical therapy and occupational therapy. And because these individuals are at higher risk for infection, teach infection prevention practices that could be as simple as when and how to perform hand hygiene. So there you have it, your brief overview of Huntington's disease. I hope you feel a bit more confident about answering questions about Huntington's disease on your NCLEX or an exam or encountering a patient with Huntington's disease in your nursing practice. So I will see you back here next week. I'm going to be sharing with you a great tip. It's something I call the doorway assessment. So I'll see you here back for that next week. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.